Hello, and welcome to episode 9 of, of the book titled The Captive of Our Low. I hope you enjoy this installment. Thanks for listening. Let's begin. Wow, this place is awesome, clamored uh, Batkin. Everything is worked marble and gilded gold. You have a key to the place, and this place ain't your home? This place? This place is not my home, replied Thokil. There was an air of nostalgia to his words. This is no home for dwarves. I'm a guest here only. I may enter, but only if I accompany a worthy dwarf. No, this is a mansion, it is true. The envy of many dwarves. I have a key to the place, but I would not call it home. I'm like you in that regard. You can share it with us if you'd like. Wow, the young dwarf jumped from one corner of the living room area to, the no to another to another, bouncing off stuffed furniture, admiring his image in the gilded framework. This is such a beautiful place, claimed the boy. And you're telling me I'm worthy being here? How is this place any different from where my father the king says it is mine? Just remember this place is not for you, only a better you. Here, this way, prompted Dokil. You've not had a hot meal? Would you like that? Just say the word, and I'll order up something for you. The finest any Dorth has to offer. Oh, I would enjoy that. Most immensely. Screw father. Haven't had a solid meal in weeks. Can I feel guilty about eating well? The best dwarves are miserable dwarves. Come, offered Thokil. The elder dwarf took Badkin by the forearm, then it squared him down an immaculate hall where were displayed paintings and suits of armor and stuffed beasts. Local stood pondering a suit of armor. It stood five foot seven inches tall. Can you answer a question for me? Is your grandfather a man and not a dwarf? The boy chortled. Never heard my grandfather call it something like that before. What did he do to you to make you for you to make a call like that. If you don't want Grandfather to like you, then just call him an out-and-out -out man. The pair ultimately entered a dining area. There, in the center of the room, was a long table with enough room to seat twelve. Candlelight danced, reflecting in the glossy table surface. At each end of the table stood a human servant, one male and one female. Each was holding a tray one carrying a teapot, and the other a covered dish of hot meats. Here, have a seat at the table. Anywhere. These servants will bring you whatever meal you desire. The boy eagerly lunged at the table, wrestled with, the, with and pulled back a chair, then plopped down and noisily scooted up. I'll have lamb, if you don't mind, confirmed Batkin. Lamb and stewed vegetables. He clapped his hands and shouted after their attendants, Don't forget bread. Cheese neither and a keg of ale. Thokul took the chair nearest the boy, his eyes sparkling. He patted the boy's hand and stuffed the bowl of his pipe, then lit the fragrant green tobacco. He sat back and studied the youth, kicking his feet back, the heels of his boots digging into the ornate carpet beneath the table. The two sat in silence. Soon the servants returned with the meal the boy asked for. He greedily dug in, savoring every bite. You must think you'd be a better king, don't you? Asked the adult dwarf, surveying the younger dwarf through a thick pile of 
blue smoke. What do you mean? queried Badkin. His mouth was full and he was clinging to a lamb leg with one hand and a half loaf of bread with another. Everyone does, and beggars most certainly. Why put yourself through such an ordeal? Your father does not respect you. He does not respect anyone. Dwarves on thrones respect no one, especially not their sons. Your father, Sturtle, must know that you would be approached and given the opportunity to betray him. He must respect the person you have chosen to become, for you are most dangerous because of your ideals, not your appetites, and such a dwarf must be respected. The boy said nothing. He stopped chewing, only studied the dwarf opposite him for the longest time. Ultimately, he returned once more to his meal. Thokil sneered, I don't like your father. Don't trust your father. He's just like any other dwarf. He's just like me. But I promise my fealty to you. What do you say? Will you be my king? Thokil himself chewed on the end of his pipe. He reached into his pocket and pulled out his jangling keys. His heavy hand muffled the noise as he slammed them on the table within reach of the beggar boy. The boy looked up. What am I supposed to do with these? he queried. Thokil smiled. You will have the run of the place. This house, the king's hall, the dungeons. Thokil the younger eased back and answered, Do you want to know why some dwarves are wealthy and others are not? The poor are better for it because they choose to be poor. Your father threatens to take everything we own from us, our wealth and privilege. Most of all, our choices that make dwarves unique, that make dwarves not dwarves at all. As king, you will have no personal wealth. You do not indulge your appetites. That's the secret. The worthy increase their number. They approach worthy candidates. The one thing everyone they recruit must do, they must renounce your father the king. They want a king like you in his place, one who would own the throne by blood, but also one who would refuse being a dwarf. There must not be wealth, there must not be status. What do you say? The old dwarf ways must pass away. The dwarves must discard them. Distinguished, the benevolent, and well-off, the pride of the dwarf nation. Can you respect any choice a dwarf intent on improving himself will make? Can you be compassionate? You telling me I will wake up one day and find myself human? The boy snorted his contempt. Thokil frowned. You could be king, king of Mi'kmaq. More than that, you could be king of the United Nation of the Dwarves. The boy studied. The boy shifted uncomfortably. No, my grandfather is the only dwarf worthy of being king, the one king. My father, King Sturtle, will suffer his wrath. I know that much. I have one question, provoked Thokil. My question is this. Is this choice, you being a beggar, your own choice, or one you'd think your grandfather would want you to make? The boy glanced at the elder dwarf, terrified. Thokil chuckled. He reached across the table and clasped the boy's hand in his and squeezed. He grappled the mug of slopping ale, downing it. You'll be close to him, assured the elder dwarf. You could kill him if you wanted to. 
Would you take the throne from him? Must you take it from him? Is that his choice for you? Are you a worthy dwarf or a vile one? The boy refused to look Thoko in the eye. Ah, yes. You've thought about it, haven't you? You've thought you could rule better than your grandfather. No secrets between two dwarves that think they can be better dwarves. The boy swallowed hard, then chuckled, then replied, You're right. You're so right. Okay, I didn't tell you everything. I tried killing my father, King Sturtel. I did. I tried, but he defeated me, disarmed me, embarrassed me. It was not even close. I don't think that's what my grandfather would have wanted of me anyway. So I came here. I chose the kind of life I think he'd want me of me. Grandfather must trust me if I am to ever rule. There we are, Thokul sneered. The truth. That was not too difficult, was it? Like I told you, we keep no secrets. Not the true ones. We have a community here. We invest in that community. We respect one another. We serve one another. We protect one another. What do you say? Are you one of us? The boy folded his hands over the edge of the table. His reply was soft, measured. They were not the first to befriend me, not the first to recruit me. Another dwarf feared my grandfather. Gretel was his name. Approached me outside the seventh gate once. He thinks I'm key to getting close to him. He saw in me what you see in him, some threat. He saw in him his weakness for me. He forgave him, insisted Thoko. He forgives everyone. Who would forgive you? He does, replied the boy. For whatever reason, he loves everyone. Don't know why. That's the secret to him ruling, I suppose. Breaking the arrogance of dwarves, following it up with their love. I love my grandfather more than words can say. I could never betray him. I could not kill him. My grandfather is the one king. Did I pass the test? Am I a true dwarf? Thoku grunted. With a swift move, he reached and grappled the axe handle and its, har and its harness behind his back. Before Thoku, before Batkin could escape, Thoku brought the axe down. The blade cleft the boy's skull in two. The humans yelped and cringed and cowered as the dead child twitched and shuddered. Blood pooled in the seat of the chair and saturated the ornate rug beneath the cooling body. Exasperated, Thokul threw his axe. The metal clanged against the stone floor. The dwarf wrestled with the table and lifted it and carried it until the legs were free of the carpet. Go on, instructed the dwarf. Call the others. Thokul waited. His chin rested on his bloody fist until a dozen other soft-spoken humans arrived. Thoku waved his hand, rolled the body up in the carpet, and must put it where it will be found. As the attendants busied themselves in caring for the body, Thoku smiled. Gretel would learn of the death of Ansel's grandson, of the one person he would care most for before dawn. There would be no more secrets. The king of the United Nation of the Doors would be revealed not only to the rich, but to the poor, the young and the old, to each and every dwarf, to their detriment, to their fear of the defeat of them all. 
There would be no more hiding of Ansel. He would have his wrath. Once he killed Batkin, Thokol had succeeded in driving a wedge between Ansel and Gretel once more. Gretel could no longer hope for his redemption in the eyes of the One King. His survival would require him to take up arms against the, his king. There was no mistaking it. It was time. Sturm would fall. In a fortnight, the War of the Dwarves, the war that forced Ansel to abdicate his throne forty years prior, would resume. Time for Thokil to call upon the imprisoned Progils, promising to stand between Gre beside Gretel when it came to that. From the ashes, a united nation of worthy dwarves would surface. Ansel and his two surviving sons would be slain. Thokil had established the one hope of defeating King Ansel once and for all. Where are the two of them? asked Toad of Rafe. The humble, soft-spoken man did not know how to reply. He was intimidated by the flamboyant, belligerent wizard. Whatever do you mean? replied the man. The sunburnt scholar was taking it easy, reclining beside his wagon, slurping from his canteen, as misfortune would have it. Two cruel wizards encountered him on the road. I'm just a modest collector. I catalog things. I chronicle things. That's all that I do. Sorry if I can't help you. Solano slashed the air with her blade, then threatened Rafe with her weapon. What has happened to my ability to charm? What do you mean? queried the scholar, uneasy, standing upright. I awoke this morning as if under a sheet of ice, cold, frozen in place, unable to move. What do you make of that? I don't know, replied Rafe. Sounds like some enchantment. I mean, I wouldn't know. I haven't that kind of power. You know that. You can see that for yourselves, can't you? No, you should look among your own kind for answers. Instead of tormenting someone given sol solely to academics and book study, should he run for the hills? Maybe drown himself in the nearby river? Certainly that death was preferable. He knew how these magic wielders loved to torment their prey. Solana snorted. You'll regret making sport of my misfortune. She opened her fists and nursed a ball of flame into existence. The light emphasized the woman's pronounced features. This will cause you so much pain, the witch determined. Yeah, added Toad, chuckling. I don't envy you the slightest. Rafe winced. He squeezed his eyes shut. He anticipated a violent end, but nothing happened. Slowly, the professor opened his eyes to see Solana and Toad, spooked, running away from Rafe, off to in the opposite direction. Toad barked, You'll regret showing your face. Give us the elves, and you won't suffer nearly as much as your mother must. Well, I did not expect that, that's for sure. But the scholar heard the rustle of leaves behind him. He turned to see a man clothed in black with mottled black hair and blue eyes and a scarred face. A crown of iron was wedged upon his head. The wizard Belfasor. Rafa groaned and swore under his breath. He may have eluded one ugly death, only to exchange it for another. I need your help, Belfasor insisted. I don't know if I can be of much help to you, replied the professor. 
All I know is, my mother's in a bad way. I've tried everything else. Death is within an arm's length of her. I must give her, I must give her up. If I do not stop her from slipping away, I will not let that happen. You will not let her, that happen. Okay, replied Rafay. He snatched up his leather satchel. I will do my best. It's all I can promise. Take me to her. And, with a flurry of his thick wool robe, Balthasar led the man through the dense forest down a rock-studded ravine to a trickling creek. There on the shore, a ghost of herself, was Tisiphone, Balthasar's mother. Raphae fell down beside Tisiphone. He took her hand. He tried to comfort the woman. He was horrified. His empathy he found sorely lacking and that wounded him gravely, being unable to appreciate the amount of pain she was suffering. The man said as much to the angry, frightened wizard behind him. It would be best to have death take her, Rafay insisted. She is in intense pain, more than one should be allowed to suffer. Let her go. Should I keep her here in the Abyssin? She will suffer the drain of her wounds for years, maybe decades. I don't care, replied Balthasar. Her pain does not compare with the pain of my being denied her here in the Abyssin. Lift her up out of the mire. Take her out of death's grasp. Do that. Should you lose her, it will be you who will suffer impossible pain and grief. A fraction of how your selfish crimes would hurt me. You decide. Raphael nodded. He surveyed the wounded witch. Then determined there may be something I can do for her. It's a long shot. Let's see. Raphael pulled over his pliable leather satchel and opened it up. After rifling through the contents for a few moments, he pulled out a vial of some viscous material. He unscrewed the cap and applied the syrupy concoction on the bruised, battered area. Instantly, the witch reacted, sighing and smiling. How is that? asked Balthazar, pushing the doctor aside. How do you feel now? Tisiphone winced and slowly opened her eyes. Double it is. Mo doable it is. Most doable. Balthasar lifted Rafay to his feet. A smile creased his scarred face. I am most grateful to you. This is the first instance of that for me. I like its peculiarity. You have saved my mother. What's more, you have reduced her pain. I have won her heart this day. She will most certainly side with me now. She has life because of me. And the war? The war has come to us now. I may have lost, and I've been a lone wizard. But now I am convinced I may just win this battle. I have won. The first victory, the best victory. Follow me. The pair made their way up the ravine into the dense cover of the forest. Finally, the two arrived at the side of a burbling river. Raphael peered through the intervening foliage. Across the slowly churning river, on the eastern shore of the Aches, congregated an army of horrors, trolls and goblins and giants and gargoyles, 
the army of the spider had been mustered. Solana's own army, indicated Belfasor. Come, I must return to mother. Neither one of us stands a chance. Not yet. We must fly west, across the Lukaks. We too must put distance between us and the enemy conniving within Mount Ish. Are you telling me you're at, you're at war with the witches and wizards atop Mount Ish? queried the doctor. I'm not alone. I must gather my mother. Do you lead an army? Me? The professor chuckled softly and shook his head. Not so much. Not so inclined am I that way. And with that said, Belfasor turned away from the swirling river and the hooting and hollering beasts and made his way back to where Mother Tisiphone lay. Rafe, intrigued and terrified, followed closely behind. Belfasor declared, I will build the fiercest army ever assembled in the West. Those who choose to answer their fear and serve loyally, those witches and wizards that are arrayed against me, those who align against me and my mother, they will suffer a terrible price. Raphael said nothing. He knew not to cross the wizard. A cornered, isolated wizard was the one most dangerous to mortals. Besides, he could foster a relationship with this lone wizard to advance his own ends. If this wizard owned the West, then it was possible for magic to be greatly reduced in the West. A world without magic was what he wanted most of all, what he endeavored to put into place. Perhaps it was best for him, for mankind, to side with the outnumbered side. There was something to Belfsor, the scholar guessed. He need be respected. He need be feared, as the witch and the wizard that ran from him feared him. The two descended the thickly wooded slope and returned to the burbling brook. Mother Tisiphone was no longer there. And that concludes episode 9 of book 4, titled The Captive of Arlo. Thanks for listening. I hope you enjoyed it. And... I'll speak to you next week. Bye for now.